You're listening to the podcast of The Branch in Ashland, Virginia. I am not what I own. I'm not my possessions. How do we avoid greed and practice generosity? Today we look at a parable that Jesus told of a man who had it all wrong. We learn from this story what can happen if we do the same. Hey everybody, my name is, <laughs> did you say hi Paige? This is my wife Paige, she was just singing with me. My name's Drew and I, uh, I think I shared this with some of you, but some of you may not know. I am currently uh, with Paige and a, a kind of a ragtag team of missionaries in uh, the west end of Richmond in Henrico. We are uh, planting a church in Scott's Edition and we're learning. <laughs> we're still learning a lot, and so we're spending some time here at the branch to learn from John, who's the pastor here, and from you all, and uh, get a feel for what it means to start a church. The branch is a young church, and uh, been around a couple years, and we're uh, in the process of planting ours, and so we're just learning from our experiences here and hoping to take that and apply it um, to what we're doing in Scott's Edition neighborhood of Richmond. And uh, we're hoping that we'll be starting up this fall uh, with some public services and gatherings. And so in the meantime, we spend some time here, and uh, our background, pages of my background, is in the arts and worship, uh, but I am drawn towards preaching and teaching, and um, I'm learning a lot in that category as well, and I'm finishing up my degree in seminary. So... Not that you needed to know all of that about me, but I think getting a little bit of context, getting to know each other a little bit, will allow us to enter into um, our topic today, um, which is greed and uh, not finding life in our possessions. We're in a series on identity that John has started, and he's got these I am not statements that have been guiding each week. And this week is I am not what I own. I am not my things. I am not my stuff. I am not my possessions. And uh, the reason for this series is uh, we are in a culture where we're always being told who we're supposed to be or how we're supposed to perform, and it's easy to find our identity in things that aren't God. And so this series is saying, hey, there's a lot of things where we may try to find our identity, but we actually aren't those things. What we are, and John told us this the first week, we are uh, children of God who are created by God on purpose, with a purpose, that God has created us intentionally, and then he's formed us in such a way that we're supposed to live into our purpose as we live our lives. And that's the fullness of life. That's where we find our true identity. But we can often, we can often find our identity in false gods. And uh, today we're going to talk about how we may try to find our identity in our own consumeristic tendencies, in material possessions, um, or just in those thoughts that become so obsessive that they trigger a lot of anxiety in us. Sometimes we can, uh, we can find our own identity in our possessions. So let me uh, pray for us, and then uh, I'll jump right into the scripture for this morning. Sound good? Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you speak to us? And would you move our hearts in such a way that we're inspired by a greater vision of what it means to be generous and to live in such a way that we see your kingdom, your work all around us for what it is, 
that we have an accurate understanding and assessment of reality, that we live with a great sense of purpose, and Lord, that we learn moment by moment to release our anxieties to you and trust that you are taking care of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look in Luke chapter 12. Luke is in the early portion of the New Testament in the Bible. And in this text, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people in the midst of his ministry. And uh, a person comes out of the crowd, as they often did, and wanted to address Jesus with a specific problem, a specific question. And here's how Jesus responds. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 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 you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is, demand, is being demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Jesus is teaching to beware of greed. And I think sometimes these topics can strike us in an emotional place. So before I get into anything this morning, I just want to say umbrella of like grace around all of us. This is a text that I'm still wrestling with and grappling with. I think it's a text that all of us um, will wrestle and grapple with. And there's something about money, possessions, the topic of greed that can trigger a lot of shame and guilt in us when we think about it. And I just want you to know that if you're feeling condemned, that's not the Spirit of God in this room. The Spirit of God is conviction, and the difference is this. Conviction still paints a picture of a better future, means you can still hear this, and you might feel like, oh, oh, that's challenging for me to hear, but there's still hope. Like, you feel inspired towards change. That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Con condemnation, that's not for the people of God. Condemnation is when guilt and shame take over. So, I say that as an umbrella over all of this because we're going to dive into a challenging topic and I don't want to circumvent what Jesus is teaching us. It's challenging, but I think it's worth digging into. At the same time, at the same time, um, lots of grace as we're all navigating this together and learning together. So Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches to be aware of greed that life is not found in the abundance of possessions. There's a man that steps out of the crowd and says, hey, can you figure out this problem that I'm having with my brother? We need to figure out our inheritance. <laughs> And Jesus is like, dude, I did not come to deal with that problem. <laughs> but I'll use you as an object lesson because Jesus saw in him something that was under the surface, which was his greed. And he then uses this man, he turns to the crowd, and he tells a parable to teach about how life is not found in our possessions. Parables are simple stories. They have an unexpected turn in them. 
And usually they set us up to be a little bit agitated. In fact, if you read a parable in scripture and don't feel agitated, especially in a modern context, then you probably aren't reading it uh, properly. Jesus told these parables because parables were actually open-ended stories. They always leave with like some sort of principle or maxim, but also open-ended in the sense that the parable is almost like this little story that's supposed to work on you so that you hear it and then you're like, ah, whatever, that Jesus guy, he's kind of crazy. I don't know why he said all that. That was kind of a weird story. And you keep going and about a year later, maybe a month later, whatever it is, some time passes and all of a sudden you're sitting one day and you're chopping vegetables and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what he means. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but somebody's told you something and it like works on you for a while. That's what the parables were intended to do. They were intended to agitate our spirits a little bit so that we would actually change. But the stories, they're hard to forget because they're so simple and so short and they have these weird twists and turns in them that they kind of shock and surprise their listeners. And Jesus likes to teach this way. So he teaches about a man who experiences a significant windfall and then decides to invest it in a comfortable retirement plan. Currently in America, currently in America, the median retirement savings for all workers is $97,000. The median, so that's the middle number, $97,000 people have set aside for retirement in America. Savings expectations for a comfortable retirement increased 10% in 2021, and they are now at $1.04 million. In other words, there's a gap in terms of what people have set aside in the, the median range. Now, some of these are young employees, so they might have more time before they actually retire that they can accrue more wealth. But there's a gap between $97,000 and $1.04 million, which is what is assessed as a comfortable retirement. Stats like this can make us feel helpless. They can make us feel like, oh no, I better prepare for the end. <laughs> I better prepare for when I can't work anymore and have a significant retirement uh, plan set in place because I want to be secure. As an American, I find it challenging that God gets so angry in the parable. I don't even know what the man did wrong. In fact, when I first read this parable and the man like notices that he's got all these extra crops and he's like, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones to hold these crops, I'm like kind of rooting for him. I'm like, good, good, you should take care of yourself, take care of your stuff, and save it accordingly. Be secure for your retirement. What did the man in the parable do wrong? See, sometimes I think when I read scripture, I'm like, well, Jesus is teaching about greed, and he's telling people to beware, and God gets mad at the guy in the story. So, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to be greedy. All right, move on. That was a good parable. But seriously, when I pause and think about it, the way I actually live in my life I actually feel like the man isn't doing, a bat, isn't doing anything wrong. Like, what is the man doing wrong in the parable? What did he do wrong? I think it's a good question to ask because I think as we ask that question, we might see some things that Jesus is doing with this parable and this story that are supposed to agitate us a little bit and supposed to move the dial on us from maybe our own greed and our own neediness for possessions and our own hyperfixation on finding security and having a good retirement strategy. And maybe it'll move the dial so that we can be more generous, more loving, more peaceful, and less anxious. So here's what I'd like to do. Before I go into what I've done with this passage, I'm going to read this parable again. And just take that question, what does the man do wrong? And see if anything pops out to you this time, now that I read the parable. Actually, I'm going to back up one verse to verse 15. 
Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he says, Take care. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is for those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. The trouble in the text. Jesus identifies that the, the brother that comes to him in the crowd, so we're not in the parable right now, the brother that comes to him is greedy. And he exposes his greed and he tells this parable. And the parable demonstrates a man who is also greedy and we're supposed to learn um, from do, not doing what the man does. He's not a good example of who we should be. We're supposed to look at the man and see that God calls him a fool and we're supposed to identify what about him is foolish? What's wrong? And what might God be calling us towards? That's what Jesus sets us up to do with this passage. And he's teaching on greed. Greed was a hot-button topic in the ancient Near East world where Jesus um, was teaching and preaching at the time. Greed is not just caring about things. Greed is not just caring about money or caring about your possessions. Greed is about hyper-focusing on them. That's, a, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. It's about being so intensely focused on them that it draws out your energy. That it's all you can think about, as if the thing itself might save you. There's ancient texts where greed is associated with people who want power, people who are greedy for power. Greed can exist in so many different ways. In fact, we've probably engaged with people who don't have a lot of possessions, but still strike us as stingy and greedy and hyper-fixated on certain things. Greed isn't just about caring about our possessions, but finding life in them. And Jesus tells this parable, and we see something weird right off the bat. What do we notice right off the bat in the parable? Let's look. Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And the man thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. The land produced abundantly. But the man thinks that he's responsible for the crops that come out of the ground. Isn't that interesting? Regardless of the fact that the land is responsible for the abundant crop yield, he thinks he's made his success. He's self-reliant. He's a self-made man. He has this land, this property, and the Greek text actually pulls this out even more. The word for land there is kora. Kora is like a wild field that produces its own vegetation. So Jesus, when he's talking to his audience, they would have caught this. It's a wild field. We don't even get the sense that this man farmed or tilled or did any work to have any of this stuff. It's just a field that produces an overgrown field that just happens to have a lot of vegetation. And the man clearly has enough. He's trying to figure out what to do with his surplus. He already has barns, and he already has barns to store his crops and his grain, but he sees this yield, and he feels like he is beholden to it. What can the man not see? Well, he can't see reality very clearly, can he? Because the reality of the matter is, is that rain had to fall, sun had to shine, 
and then all the whatever photosynthesis or whatever had to happen to actually produce the crops had to happen. And all of that was outside of his control before he got the windfall and had the crops show up on his property and he got to keep them. The man doesn't take a second to think, I'm not even responsible for this. What a gift. Oh, I'm so grateful. No, he just sees it on his property, so it's his. And he's got to find a way to protect it and store it. That's really interesting to me. Greed was a big deal in the ancient Near East because it was considered one of the top vices. It was one of the top vices. And part of the reason that greed was such a big deal for them was because they saw a greedy person as disrupting the cosmos, as disrupting the order of things, as disrupting reality. See, greed skews our view of reality so that we can't see it clearly. We think we're responsible for a lot more than we actually are. And I think this happens a lot in our culture as well. What's really, really fascinating to me is that there's current research right now, right now, where scientists are noticing that people that have a high materialistic instinct, meaning they're very caught up in their possessions, actually have a broken relationship with the environment. Isn't that interesting that this man, it's not just that he's greedy, meaning it impacts him and his life and his things, or even his relationships as we sometimes think. We sometimes go out of the individual sphere and think, okay, well, this could disrupt his friendships. He's greedy. He also doesn't have a healthy engagement with the environment. See, there's something in this text that's baked in that like, this man is supposed to be grateful for the land. He's supposed to engage with the land a certain way. He's supposed to take these crops and, and realize that he wasn't responsible for them. And yet, and yet, he uses the land. He objectifies it. He doesn't actually have this right ordering of things. He's got a disrupted view of reality. It's very skewed. And he also has a decreased sense of purpose. Greed breaks down our sense of purpose and our vision for life. Notice what he says to himself in verses 18 and 19 when he talks about his goods. He says, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's his vision of the good life? What does he think? He thinks one day the work will be done. One day I will be content. And my soul, at a soul level, think about this. He thinks that his soul is going to be better by having all of this grain well taken care of. That is really interesting. In other words, he has a decreased sense of purpose. What he sees as the good life is comfort and luxury. If I can get to that point where I can retire and be comfortable, then I'll be okay. Also, the Greek uses an interesting word here. For goods, the term that's used has to do with the things that bring salvation. In other words, when this term is used in other contexts, in the, like the ancient Near East world, or, or even in the Bible in other contexts, the word that is being used for his goods, when he says, my goods, it'd be like us saying, oh, this is saving my life right now. <laughs> I am so glad that I have this thing that's saving my life right now. Or if I could just get that thing, it would save my life. In other words, he views his goods in the same way that we would view a job that's going to make everything better or a car that's going to make everything better or a lifestyle or a vacation opportunities that are going to make everything better. His vision of the good life, his idea of his soul, his psyche, his deep, uh, the deepest part of him is going to be satisfied by having these things. He says, 
that his soul will be able to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, revive, revive my soul. Come to life, come to life in your possessions. The man's soul will be revived once his crops are in bigger barns, and he'll be able to relax. The work will be done. But will the work ever be done? Will he ever be content? You see, he got a surplus, and he still had to tear everything down and build bigger barns. If he can't be content with having enough, and he needs to have more, will he ever be content? Because right now he has an abundance, and he's still not content. Greed not only disorients him and disrupts his view of reality, meaning he has a skewed view of what he's responsible for, it also decreases his sense of purpose so that the end goal is comfort, and it is fueled by insecurity. What he's worried about is taking care of his crops. Anxiety and insecurity are always associated with greed because as we need and want more, we feel responsible. We feel burdened to do whatever we can to get those things. And then the parable ends with uh, sort of this saying from Jesus that we should be rich toward God. Be rich toward God. What does that even mean? So if greed breaks things down to the point where we aren't rich toward God, what does it mean to actually be rich toward God? And as I looked into this phrase, it's really hard to know what it means. Um, So here's what I'll do. I'll share with you a few options of what it could mean that I found to be very compelling, and then we can go from there and see how we can apply this to the text. This idea of being rich toward God, commentators don't know what it means, quite frankly. It's not used anywhere in the ancient world. It's never used again in the Bible. This is the only place where it exists. We don't know what it means to be rich toward God. It's sort of a weird way of saying it. I'm rich toward something. I don't know what that means. But here's what they suspect it means. They suspect that it has something to do with this idea of being rich in the things that God would value. Or being rich toward God is also terminology that is close, close, close to a benefactor-recipient relationship. Meaning, being rich toward God means giving our things to God. Giving our things to God. And they associate it with Proverbs uh, 19, which says this. See if you can catch it. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. In other words, being rich toward God likely has something to do with giving alms, giving things away to the poor, to the least of these, to the less significant, in such a way that we are actually, when we are giving to the disenfranchised, we're actually giving to God. And this feels burdensome because oftentimes I want to take the Bible and make it more metaphorical. Like, oh, it just means, it means living a life that values the things that God values. And that could be what it means. But Jesus goes on in his teaching, and we won't get into this right now. We're going to get into this in just a second. But he goes on and teaches about almsgiving. That is the very next thing he does. He tells people to give to the poor. It's the very next thing he does after teaching this parable. And so a lot of commentators connect these two and say, you know what Jesus is saying is, this man thought that the way to protect his wealth was to gain more, to, pr- to build bigger barns. But what Jesus teaches is actually give more away and you actually feel more wealthy. You'll never be content by trying to protect what you have. But if you give it away, you will find that you are untethered to your things and it will actually free you up to be rich toward God. He's actually talking about doing something with this. That's, that's very fascinating. And also quite convicting for me. 
Because I think I also succumb to this idea of being a self-made man. I think a lot of times we do too. I think we live in a world that celebrates this. And in our society that's so consumeristic, it actually becomes a value, a virtue to save for our retirement, to accrue wealth. And we end up living fueled by insecurity and anxiety the whole time. So what's the trouble with being greedy? He's got a distorted view of reality. He's got a struggle with his sense of purpose. And, and he's fueled by anxiety and insecurity. What do we see in our world today? Well, this is a challenging teaching because of American consumerism, isn't it? I mean, part of what makes this so hard to talk about is that we live in a world that has a value structure that's built on the very things that this man seems to care about in the parable. The American Psychological Association, in fact, if we have this uh, quote up there, Dylan, you can throw it up. If not, no worries, it's just long. Yes. Okay, listen to this. This is crazy, y'all. Okay, so this is us now in modern day. We're going to talk about some of the underpinnings of what's made our life so consumeristic and why we can so easily succumb to the mindset of this man in the parable. Pay attention to this. Compared with Americans in 1957, today we own twice as many cars per person. Twice as many cars. Jesus teaches on, like, if you have two co coats, give one of them away. We have twice as many cars as people in the 50s. Okay, even better. As uh, we enjoy endless, oh, sorry, twice as many cars, and we eat. We eat out twice as often, and we enjoy endless other commodities that weren't around uh, back then, such as big screen TVs, microwave ovens, SUVs, handheld wireless devices, and that's just to name a few. Yet, yet, even with all this affluence, even with all the abundance, we're unhappy. We have slightly less happiness than people in the 50s, and we're at much greater risk of depression. And this is crazy, this way of saying it, assorted social pathology, which is another way of saying we have anxieties and all sorts of disruptions internally. Consumerism, this is why this is so important, y'all. Consumerism has transformed our metrics for success in a good life because it's given us a different value system. It's handed us the value, the things that are most valuable in consumerism are luxury, comfort, feeling taken care of, security. And yet, isn't it interesting that as we have more and possess more and acquire more, we end up more anxious, less secure. We end up with all sorts of social pathology. Until the 1850s, in fact, by far, the most popular and dominant form of social measurements in the 19th century were a collection of social indicators known as moral statistics. In other words, when we talked about what made us a great nation, we talked about people that were hard workers. We talked about people that had strong families. We talked about a good education system. And then you know what happened in the 1850s? We started at attaching price tags to things that we would normally think of as priceless. Because as the Industrial Revolution occurred and the Progressive Era came in and we started having the Gilded Age in the turn of the 19th century, I know I'm using a lot of weird terms, but just geek out with me for just a second. As these things shifted in our culture, what happened to the framework of America is our values of efficiency and comfort rose. And so the best way to be efficient and train business people was to associate dollar signs and amounts with everything that we did. So we no longer talked about life on terms of our character and our caliber of being good citizens. We talked about how much money we had accrued and whether the North or the South um, was stronger than the other based on how much money and how much uh, they brought in per capita. 
They called it the capitalization of everyday life, which we put a price tag on everything. This is crazy to me. Let's go to the next slide. Oh my gosh, an eight pound baby in 1910 was worth $362 a pound for an eight pound baby. And that was in the New York Times. And it gets worse. Check this out. During this era, do we have another slide? Yes. Okay. An array of progressive reformers priced out not only babies, but the annual social cost of everything. Everything from, here we go. Ready for this? This is in America. The common cold was $21 a month per employee. Typhoid, $271 million. A housewife, the, the labor for a housewife. That, uh, for, the for the nation, it was $7.5 billion. And the annual social benefit of skunks was at $3 million. <laughs> when everything has a price tag, everything is open to consumption. The type of consumerism is not, this type of consumerism isn't amoral. It actually carries a set of values that put a premium on personal security and comfort. Forbes magazine released an article this year, and they said this, in this new reality, comfort, wellness, and health are becoming bigger priority, and consumers are driving, um, and they're driving consumers' purchase decisions. When have you made a purchase decision based on your own comfort, wellness, and well-being? A life seeking our own comfort decreases our sense of purpose because it shrinks our vision of the good life down to one of comfort and luxury. Life is no longer about character development, but acquiring more and having more wealth. And this is driven by insecurity and fear. Psychology Today said greed has unpleasant effects on our inner emotional lives. The anxiety and restlessness we feel when we long for some possession and a false assurance that upon gaining it, we'll be at ease and satisfied, places us in a literally vicious cycle. Like the rich fool, we think that responsibilities end with securing our own economic future. If we can just have enough for retirement, we'll be fine. A line of research suggests that insecurity, both financial and emotional, lies at the heart of consumeristic cravings. Indeed, it's not money per se, but the striving for it that leads to unhappiness. Do you see greed impacting your life? Maybe at the beginning of this, we were like, okay, that's great for the guy that had all the storehouses and stuff, but I don't live in an agricultural world. I've never come into a windfall where my land has produced a bunch of crops. But what about places where you're investing purely because you are so fixated on your own comfort, on your own security? What disrupts your relationships? What takes up your imagination and drives your fear? And where are you trying to find security in your possessions? It's overwhelming. So here, let me make a turn as we bring this in home. There's good news. <laughs> There's good news, and Jesus tells us about it. Let me read this. Let this just wash over you for a second. These are the words of Jesus just a few verses after he teaches on this parable. He starts talking about um, our clothing, all of our possessions, all of our food, all of our drink, and then he says this. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, food, clothing, valuable possessions, luxury. And your father knows that you need them. Father, as in God in heaven. Instead, instead strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock. And that's sweet. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure Listen to this, to give you the kingdom. 
sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, listen, and don't miss this. This is really, really important. The Father takes pleasure in giving you the kingdom. In other words, we don't get out of this vicious cycle on our own. That's actually the good news, is that we are going to be just like this guy in the parable. We are prone to want to build bigger barns. We are prone to want to have more of our own things. We are prone to want to take care of ourselves. We are prone to want to have security. We are prone to be anxious mess trying to seek after the good life with more luxury and more comfort. All of that is true of me, and I'm sure you can find areas in your life where it's true of you. And the good news is that you don't stop that. You don't transform from that on your own power or on your own will. The reason that this man is foolish is because he doesn't pause to recognize that there's somebody greater than him that could transform his desires so that he would become the type of person that would then want to share his things. If you hear this story and you think, but I am not very good at giving to the poor, it can feel like a burden to you. Jesus' teaching can feel like a law that you have to obey. But Dallas Willard says this about Jesus. He says, one of the many barriers that people see to Jesus' teachings is they see them as laws that they have to obey, but they are not. Hear this, they are not. They are expression of a life that comes to you. God wants to give you the kingdom. They come to you through a new birth, and you're naturally disposed to develop a new kind of person inside. So when many look at the teachings of Jesus, they're demoralized. We feel overwhelmed. I don't give enough. I'm not generous enough. That's what we would be inclined to think after digging into this parable more. We may say, I don't have these things as I now am. Of course it's impossible. But if you say instead that this is the sort of person I can become, then they will open up and appear as good things and not as an imposition. In other words, what Jesus is saying when he says, hey, take heart, little flock. God knows that you need a lot of things. He knows that you need security. He knows that you need a certain amount of possessions in order to make it through life, and he will take care of you. What he's saying when he says that is God wants to give it to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do a daggum thing to make this happen. God wants to give it to you. And that is the inner transformation. But here's the problem. There's still a gap. How does transformation happen? How? How do we get there? It's so compelling that Jesus says the Father wants to give it to us. And I think we all agree that there's a certain amount of greed inside of us. Like, we all kind of want to build bigger storehouses and have that nice 401, 401, not 401c3, 501c3, 401 we're starting a church. I don't know what the numbers are for different things. Um, if anybody wants to be our financial assistant, please come. I need much help. Um, I want security, but I just, you know, I don't know what to do with money. So um, God takes that disrupted view of reality, and he says, hey, look at life and realize that you're actually part of a greater network of things. Anything that comes to you in life, other people have an input in that. You aren't just a self-made individual. In fact, even your land that produces crops is outside of your control. When you pump gas, 
Just think about the system of things that had to happen to refine that oil, to get it out of the ground, to all the people and machines and everything and networks of things that are responsible just to get gas in your car. And you think you're pumping gas in your car. You're not pumping gas in your car. You're only doing it because somebody else has provided that for you. Think about how that changes your spirit when you recognize that you're connected to something so much bigger than just yourself. It changes things when you show up at the grocery store and they don't have the product that you wanted. Because instead of getting angry and frustrated about it, because it's not going to bring you comfort in that moment, you can pause and say, you know what? There's a lot of things outside of my control, and this just happens to be one of them. And today, it just happens to not be available to me. It transforms you. All the good things we know about God, about his kingdom, these are the things, life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all of these things that sound so good to us, this is what he brings when we come to him and we give our lives to him as our king. But how, how do we get there? Here's how I think we get there, and here's what I'll close with. Prayer, practice, and community. Prayer, practice, and community. We start by asking God to show us his kingdom. We start by asking, literally asking him, like, hey, God, can you show me where I'm greedy? Can you show me, can you search my heart and show me things that I might not be aware of? And can you show me what it might look like to be generous? I think he'll reveal it to us. And then we practice. Take a baby step even this week. Take a baby step this week. Maybe for you what it is, is it's just reminding yourself when you wake up in the morning before you get out of bed, instead of quickly grabbing my phone and checking email or checking social media, I'm just going to say, God, you're in control of my life. I don't control my own life. See how that changes you. Take the baby step of practice because that's part of following the way of Jesus is that we pray and connect ourselves with God and we take a baby step. And then community. Share with friends what you're struggling with. I think these are three very practical things, but these three things are still not enough to bring transformation. The only way transformation happens, and please hear me on this, is by the work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. And so the only way that's going to happen is by you opening yourself up to God's lordship in your life. That's the only way it happens. But when it does, the goodness of God will wash over you, and you will no longer be the person. Yes, it might take some time to keep working it out of your system, but you will no longer be the person that's oriented purely towards your own comfort. You'll be able to live for a greater purpose, which is the kingdom of God, and you'll be able to live with a generous spirit because God will do that work in you because he wants to give you the kingdom, but he can't give it to you if you're caught up in building your own storehouses. You have to pause and recognize that you are one small part of a greater whole and that God is in control. So let's pray. And let's ask God to do this work in us as we come to sing our final song. Father, we got a lot of things. Statistically, just being American citizens, we have a lot in the grand scheme of things. And we recognize, Lord, that we aren't our possessions. And we recognize, God, that when we think that we are our possessions, we degrade our quality of life. We reduce our vision of the good life. We realize, Lord, that we live with anxiety and insecurity. And Lord, we, we want to live as secure individuals who are generous, who are loving, who are kind, who do all the things that you say are good in your kingdom. We want to be that way. Lord, would you help us. But even more than that, God, would you save us? Would you transform that place in our core? 
even the places where we are tempted right now, Lord, I pray by your spirit that anybody here who's tempted to go try to work their way out of any of these problems, to just say, you know what, I'm just going to go give away all my stuff to the poor. Before they do that, before they do even a good thing like that, Lord, would you pause and give them peace from your Holy Spirit that says you love them and you, you want to be Lord of our lives. You don't just want us to do a bunch of good things and manufacture a new form of self-reliance. You want us to actually submit our wills to your Lordship so that we can be open to whatever you may do and wherever you may lead us. Father, we love you and we hand all of this to you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Beware of greed. Beware of being hyper-focused on money and possessions. So much so that you look to find life and salvation in those things rather than in God. Are we being generous people? Have we become greedy? Looking only for our own self-interests and comforts? Prayer, practice, community. Three ways that Drew gave us in which we can take action from what we've heard today. Ask God to reveal your heart to you. Take baby steps of practice and share with your friends as you walk out your faith together. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or questions, please email us at thebranchashland at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, give us a review, and share with your friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.